Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 452 with my guest Jamie Torkowski. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is, excuse me, I'm moving a bunch of papers around here. I might as well be doing the show from an escalator in a crowded mall right now. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that does not suck. The website for this show and the mental, the mental, the social media handles is uh, mentalpod. That would be mentalpod.com and at mentalpod. Uh, my insomnia has been fucking with me this week. And it every once in a while, I'll be able to figure out what it is. I'll be able to find something that, that works. I, I go to bed about 3 in the morning, and a lot of times I'll toss and turn till about 5 in the morning. And one of the things, sometimes CBD oil will work for me. Sometimes listening to something that's relaxing will will help me. Sometimes taking um, electrolytes or getting up and eating something sweet. Sometimes eating a bowl of raisin bran with extra milk in it. And I've found that lately the raisin bran with extra milk has been helping. But eating a huge bowl of cereal right before you fall asleep is not too good for your body. And so all the weight that I lost when I was on vacation, I dropped about 10 pounds. It's all immediately back. My pants are fitting tight. And I was at my girlfriend's the other night, and I'm sure you've experienced this before, where you can tell what somebody is thinking by the subject that they suddenly introduce. And I was standing in front of her, and I was undressed, and 
there was a pause and she said, oh, I forgot to tell you my dad's coming to Atlanta. <laughs> and I just went, why did you all of a sudden just start talking about your dad? Is it because physically I look like your dad right now? And she just started laughing. We both laughed pretty hard, but um, it was, uh, is that a wake-up call for me to start walking more or exercising? I don't know. But I was in my support group the other night, and somebody talked about boredom, and it got me thinking that so much of life, I don't know if it's if you guys experience this, but for me, is trying to just eke out a little corner somewhere between boredom and chaos. And boredom, I know, is mental. If I'm having difficulty being present, a lot of times it will I will experience it, or, or I'm experiencing depression, I'll lose interest in most things. And chaos, even though on the surface it seems like it's an external thing, ultimately I really feel like chaos is a mental thing. Because when I'm in a good place, I'm able to feel a certain sense of peace even when there are lots of unresolved problems. And I know any chaos that I experience in my life is probably pretty small to, compared to somebody that's got six kids and is working two jobs and you know, the spouse has you know, got some serious illness. But anyways, I started thinking about what is the, what is the best tool? when something is fucking with me mentally and a sense of acceptance over the things that I don't have any control over. And there are certain things that, that pop into my head and over and over again that make it hard for me to accept the world as it is. The things that I can't control or change in the world. And one of the things is, I know this sounds incredibly specific, but homophobia in Texas. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because Texans a lot of times brag about, you know, the largeness of Texas. And there's just an overcompensating vibe to that type of Texan that just gets under my nerves. And I have trouble accepting that they are who they are and they have every bit as much right to be who they are and have the opinions that they do as as I do. But I had an experience a while back, God, 1989. There was a, I was doing stand-up in San Antonio, Texas. And it was during the World Series, and those of you that were around them remember that there, while the World Series was being broadcast, there was a large earthquake in San Francisco where the World Series was being played. And I was in San Antonio about a week after this happened, and the comic who was on stage before me said, how about that earthquake in San Francisco? That's God's way of telling fags that it's wrong. And he got a standing ovation. And this was the first night of a week performing there. And I just remember feeling a combination of anger 
and sadness. And it's not like I'm the greatest defender of equal rights, uh, but there's something about that that just, I don't think it's ever really left me. And I think one of the things that bothers me so much is there's a, you know, there's that, that Shakespearean phrase that me think thou doth protest too much. You know, people that are usually so vehemently against something, I think oftentimes spot something that they don't like about themselves and someone else. I do it. I know if somebody really gets under my skin, there's usually something there that I don't like about myself that I that I'm seeing reflected in them. And I suppose it's it's even though the homophobia tends to be the vehicle for their inauthenticity and they're compensating, I think I probably hate that part of myself that feels inauthentic, that feels like I need everybody to love me and who do I need to be in any given situation for to feel like I can relax, to feel that I'm loved and accepted. But there's just something about that male Texan that's just trying too hard to be macho. Like I know guys who are very masculine, but it's there's an authenticity to it. It isn't forced. And there are certain like rodeos. I don't I was trying to think, what is it about rodeos that get on my nerves so much? And it just feels like, it feels so, like there's this layer of homoeroticism underneath it that, that, that they're trying to compensate for. I mean, if you think about it, you've got a guy wrapping his legs around a 2,000-pound animal whose dick is so big it could be seen from space. And they are risking their lives seeing how long they can hold on while this thing pounds them in the ass. And yet it is held up as this bastion of masculinity. I don't know. It, I need. I need to do work on myself. I am a work in progress. I guess that's what I'm saying. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dee Dee, and uh, she writes: When I was 16, I signed up for an after-school typing class. One day, as I was headed out the door for class, I grabbed a stack of paper from my parents' printer. At a stoplight, I noticed some writing on the paper. To my horror. It was a scathing letter that my mother wrote to a woman my dad was having an affair with, complete with references to fingernail scratches on my dad's back. I turned the car around and put the paper back where I found it. I didn't tell anyone about the letter for more than a decade. I quit the typing class and still blame that damn letter for my inability to type. Thank you for that. Ugh. Ugh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Girl, who really wanted to have a clever nickname for the podcast. Uh, her issues are depression, anxiety, codependency, dealing with relationship-related emotional trauma from toxic men. What has helped you deal with them? Vitamin D, journaling each morning at work, listening to this podcast, and listening to a few other podcasts I enjoy, exercising and getting out of my head. 
knowing when to put down all of the thoughts and just try to be. I usually accomplish this by watching or listening to something mindless and funny or talking to a friend. What, if any, things have people what, if any, things have people said or done that have helped you with your issues? Everyone in my life seems to be great at knowing their yeses and nos, knowing what their boundaries are and how to ensure they stay in place. Hearing people enforce their own boundaries gives me the feeling that one day I might be able to do the same. It's such an important topic, boundaries, man. It is such an important topic, and it's so hard if you're not used to setting boundaries, that discomfort when you tell people no and you're afraid that they're going to freak out or dislike you or whatever. And I've found that the more I'm willing to walk through that fear and be true to myself, the less scary it is to, to do it the next time. And then this is uh, our last survey before the interview with Jamie. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Linz. And she writes, uh, with today being the anniversary of 9-11, I was reflecting on where I was when the planes hit. Uh, I was a junior in high school and I was at home with my mom getting ready for school and work. We always watched the Today Show, so we saw the TV coverage from the first moment and were standing aghast when we watched the second plane hit in real time. The Today Show immediately started replaying the impact of the second plane, but in her shock, my mom thought each replay was a new plane. She was counting and becoming more hysterical with each replay. A third just hit. A fourth, a fifth, six planes. She got to seven before I started laughing and pointed out that it was the same plane. It was an awful event and a surreal day, but I always appreciated the quick moment that she gave us to step back from the intensity. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. We have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work. To heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Jamie Torkowski, who is the founder of To Write Love on Her Arms, which is uh, just a, a great nonprofit that spreads awareness and and more importantly connects people who need help but haven't quite found it yet and you're you're able to connect them and, and one of the things that you support and give money to is in the rooms.com which is such such a great thing um for people that can't get to 12-step meetings it's a way online for them to attend meetings and they have every 12-step meeting that you could you could imagine and for people that live in the boonies that a lot of times that's the conundrum is they want to find peer support and be reminded that they're not alone and hear how others are recovering so uh 
congrats on all the, all the great work you're doing. You guys have won so many awards, like the, the best nonprofit on Twitter and all kinds of musicians and bands wearing your t-shirts. Uh, enough about me. Uh, let's start with, with your story and then we'll talk about how you got into starting to write Love on Her sure. Arms. You were born in North Carolina, but you were raised in Florida. Yeah, I've been in Florida since I was about five. Yeah. What was childhood like for you? I'm always interested to know when somebody kind of devotes their life as an empath, Sure, where that came from. No, I'm someone who goes to counseling. So we've been talking about this in counseling as well. And I had a really good childhood. Mm-hmm. I, 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 to this day, have a good relationship with my parents. They're still together. But looking back, I was definitely a sensitive kid. I was always someone then and now who felt and feels things deeply. So I think I was prone to worry and fear, uh, but definitely a lot of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Are there any moments you can recall from childhood or adolescence that kind of define that feeling? You know, there was a time when I thought, I was going to drown surfing. I don't I don't believe in actuality that I was close to it, but I remember having that fear of being underwater even if it's for a a few seconds. You're too. being held down by a wave. Yeah, just and I I swam the wrong way. I thought I was swimming for the surface and I ended up hitting the bottom. And I remember being so afraid. I I told my dad I wanted to quit surfing and, and just that that feeling I think of fear of and and fear at that point probably thinking I this I just need to stay alive. I don't it's not worth it anymore. Uh, I think my dad has stories of me in kindergarten, like handing me to the teacher because I'm just crying and I don't mm-hmm. want to go, you know, yeah. I don't remember that kindergarten story firsthand, but the, the swimming and hitting the bottom, I, I do recall. Yeah. That's so funny. My kindergarten report card said, Paul's a nice boy, but he cries too much. <laughs> and I remember being handed off and being inconsolable mm. at starting kindergarten yeah. and so afraid of making mistakes. That's, that's yeah. interesting. Uh, give me some snapshots from your life that you think kind of are emblematic or defined how you viewed yourself or the world. I was popular. I had friends. I had friends that ran in different circles. Uh, I feel like I'm the child of parents who cared about people's problems, parents who, who felt things and were empathetic and sympathetic. And so I think that planted the seed of what it, maybe they modeled what it looked like to try to care for the people around them. Uh, I remember things like when there would be fights, even in middle school, that when everyone would kind of circle up and be excited. I wasn't excited. Like mm-hmm. I, I hated the idea of people being in pain or people getting hurt. Uh, even I remember um, when sort of like drugs came into the picture, just hating the news of someone getting suspended or expelled. So kind of just maybe felt things in a, in a different way. And, and yet never, never really had enemies until it's funny. I think my introduction again, kind of to, the world of drugs, which back then is primarily marijuana as a, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the America, it looks and feels different today than it, than in my mind growing up, you know, that would have been like late eighties, early, early nineties at that point. Uh, I mean, part of the fun was that you might get caught. It was such a secretive 
you know, rebellious thing yeah. to do. And I think for me, I had that journey of being an outsider who was afraid of something that was foreign mm -hmm. and then experiencing it firsthand and coming to feel different and then kind of all of it getting out of my system by like 10th grade, you know? So mm -hmm. I had this, this quick journey, but uh, I think just a sensitivity to pain, conflict, consequences, uh, from an early age. Uh, but there was certainly a lot to learn because I didn't grow up wanting to start a nonprofit. I didn't grow up with charity heroes or mental health heroes really fell into it. And mm. I was fortunate, I think it to be willing to put a hand up and, and have let some people mentor me and let some people teach me the things that I didn't know. And had you, uh, had any counseling up to that point? No. So it was interesting. I think my introduction to mental health, to depression was my first real adult girlfriend. And I, I think I would have been 22 at the time and she struggled with depression and I totally didn't get it. I, I, I had good intentions uh, and I, I grew up a Christian and I remember thinking if we can just talk about it and pray about it, you know, I can offer you that and that will help. And looking back probably did more harm than good because I didn't, know the first thing about what this person who I did care deeply for, I, I didn't know what she was dealing with and I really didn't know how to help her. And so looking back, I made a lot of mistakes. We don't communicate anymore. And I always think if she knew what I was doing now, it must be, mm -hmm. you know, a very interesting perspective for her because I just totally fumbled in terms of being introduced to this subject, mm -hmm. you know, and at this point it's like 17 years ago, which is wild. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think, I think, things started to fall apart. But I, I do think that played a part was that she was struggling and I, I didn't know how to help. And my help actually wasn't very helpful. That, and that's a really common one in uh, the religious communities. I'm somebody who prays. I'm somebody who believes in a higher power yet. I also know that, you know, I, I, if I had diabetes, I couldn't pray uh, and create insulin. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so how did to write love on her arms uh, come about? So I was 26, it was 2006, and I was introduced to a girl named Renee who very quickly became a friend. I met her through a mutual friend who was in recovery. He has since passed away, but a, just one of my all-time favorite people. And he had become sort of a big brother to Renee, my buddy David. And I was actually renting a room from David in Orlando at the time. And she was denied entry into a local treatment center in Orlando, and she spent the next five days living in our living room. And it wasn't her first time getting help or on the brink of getting help, but the first time in a while. And we just had to keep her safe for that five days. And then she would be admitted mm -hmm. into this treatment center. And so... And what were her issues? Depression, addiction. Part of why she was denied entry was a, a fresh self-inflicted wound on her arm. So the night I met her, after I met her, she wrote the word fuck up across her forearm with a razor blade. And it was because of the drugs in her system and that self-inflicted wound, this particular facility denied her entry. Why would they deny somebody entry? I can understand maybe the, in, actually, I can't even understand the intoxication thing, but oh, sure. I, I, I can't understand. That would seem to me that you would rush that person. Oh, totally. To a, to so this bed. particular place, I, I think, didn't offer detox, didn't offer an element of detox, and they labeled her too high risk. I think at this point they don't, it, 
it doesn't even exist anymore, this place. I see. So they thought they weren't qualified. It's it's not yeah. that. Yeah. I, I guess that kind of makes sense because they didn't want to do her a disservice. And I think the idea that it could be harmful or dangerous or triggering for the other women that were there. And I wasn't in on any of those conversations, but that's kind of how I remember it secondhand. And I think it's important to point out that wouldn't usually be the case. Um, but it's certainly, I, I get your reaction a lot where people go, what? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Even it, in, they actually made a film about how this whole thing got started. And that's one of the moments in the film of just pointing out the absurdity of if you can't get help at a treatment center, where can you, right. you know, it, it, at least hold the person, sure. get, provide something sure. until you can connect yeah, them. But I think the, the silver lining for us was it set the stage for this five days that we got to spend together uh, that I had the privilege of living and then writing about just, just briefly. It's like a two and a half page story that I called to write love on her arms. And that was really what went back to what she had marked on her arm. And I think ultimately the idea that if that was about identity, I I was had this hope and goal that she could believe better for herself, Mm -hmm. that she could believe that she wasn't a fuck up, a failure, that life could look different, that healing and sobriety could be possible for her and that it was possible to change. And so I think that's what was wrapped up in this unusual title. And then soon after that, had the idea to print and sell some t-shirts as a way to raise money just to help pay for her treatment. And all of this was 2006 and it happened on MySpace. Mm -hmm. So MySpace was kind of home base for the story. In 2006, MySpace was really the beginning of social media becoming normal becoming Mm -hmm. part of you know just everyday culture mainstream people giggle rightfully so that myspace you know came and went but looking back that was sort of the beginning of it just being part of everyday life for so many people and so give me some moments you can remember of her staying with you guys and uh if there was any sense of connection or community and how she reacted to that or how you felt so i think for me i had never had conversations like we were having i'd never had this sort of experience and so there was a lot of i think listening and and learning david was certainly our leader people try to paint me as kind of the hero or the leader because of how things have gone but really i I was more like a fly on the wall who, who hopefully was trying to be compassionate but david was our leader because he knew recovery because it was personal for him uh, so a lot of it was just keeping her safe, keeping her smiling and laughing. We did a couple fun things. We went to a couple concerts, took her to a basketball game. So just, we knew that this was a hard moment and that she was on the brink of, or she was not only in a hard moment, but that, that stepping into treatment would be hard as well. And I think we tried to make it as enjoyable as possible. We tried mm-hmm. to make sure she felt loved and supported and we had a deal, her and I, that for every day she would stay sober, I would smoke a cigarette. I didn't mm-hmm. smoke. And so it was this yeah. ridiculous thing where I'm in the, you know, on the back porch coughing, but she's getting yeah. a kick out of it. And it's one more day that she's sober. Uh, the last night we spent all together, she gave me her razor blade that she had kept with her. And, and she felt like that would be her hardest night. And so she wanted me to have that. And I wrote about that in the story, but that was, you know, something I'll never forget that was really meaningful. But a lot of it, it wasn't epic. It wasn't brilliant. It was just a few of us in a living room trying to care for this person. I mean, isn't that what recovery is? It's it's not necessarily like in the movies. There can be moments like that. But a, a lot of times, it's mm. just listening, 
Sure. Hugs. Yeah. Coffee. Yep. Crying, laughing. Yeah. Getting annoyed with each other. Sure. And I think too, it's important to point out there was an element that, that we sort of got lucky as well, where she had had experiences before and also since. I mean, she relapse has been part of her story. Uh, so I, I don't ever want people to just think like, oh, they, they took her to concerts and a basketball game and Starbucks and she's all better and it was all good. Like it's a fairy tale. Um, I'm really thankful for how that five days went. And I know for a lot of other people who have tried to step in and help a loved one, they haven't had the identical experience. And I think it feels important to acknowledge the weight of that. So I yes. think there's an element of just being grateful and thankful for how it went, but yes. also knowing that it's been really painful on either side of that time yes. as well. And and to uh, understand that when it comes to somebody's addiction or mental illness, no one human being has the power to save, cure, you know, whatever that person. We can comfort, we can guide, we can suggest, um, but ultimately it's out of our hands. And that's, um, I'm sure as you know, the, the heart of codependence mm. and um a lot of times the the person who is so focused on the addict has their own issues and it can almost become that person's well-being can almost become a drug for that person have you ever found yourself getting into a situation where you are ignoring what's going on in your personal life because you're so about uh, i've got to ease everybody's pain and I'm, I'm not doing enough, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think whether it's it's kind of the collective weight of I have to serve this community or even the individual weight of even right now, I relate to that in terms of, you know, having a, a friend who or a loved one that you're deeply concerned about and feeling like you can take that on and kind of lose yourself in it. So I, I totally can. I, th I think over, you know, we're about 13 years in. And, and so I think I've had to learn you know, boundaries and what does it look like for me not to just encourage the whole world to be healthy, but to practice being healthy in the midst of that. And I have a counselor buddy who just talks about sort of, we, we, we kind of put people in two camps and there's the person who needs help and there's the person who wants to help. And and everyone would agree the person who needs help, they they need that professional help, but we can forget that the person trying to help needs and deserves a support system as well. Yeah. Any moments where you were faced with that issue and you had to set a boundary what did that look like or you had to uh practice self-care maybe pull away recharge your battery yeah i think a couple of things come to mind uh sort of big picture there there have been times where i was struggling to the point where our team sat me down i think actually i had i had some travel coming up for speaking events and our team said hey we don't think you should go like we think you really need to focus on your own healing you got to take care of you right now were there signs that well, th that they, they saw just, for me it's always been tied to breakups it's always been heartache and just really really struggling and and being really down and depressed in the midst of those mm -hmm. seasons uh so i think i think anyone who knew me at all would have known that or seen that. And certainly the people I worked closely with did. And that's happened almost two years ago. Now our, our leadership sat me down and this was more big picture. Hey, you seem uninspired. You seem down. Uh, what do you want? What do you want your life to look like? What do you want your role to look like? 
But I think circling back to your original question, I, some of it is I, I think early on I thought I needed to be sort of the, I don't know about, not the hero maybe, but just I needed to be available for people at all hours, almost like I, like people wanted me to be like a helpline or a hotline. And it feels so much healthier today where I'm just a part of our team mm -hmm. and our team is, is connected to other, you know, we point to crisis text line a ton, a network of 3000 primarily volunteer crisis counselors. So I think we're constantly pointing away from me and away from our team to these resources that exist on bigger scales and also in local communities, but just realizing that it's not all about me responding to every tweet or comment or direct message. Uh, it, it's, it's not all about me being the one that, that people need to share their story with, but mm -hmm. the hope is that people would connect with a community, with friends, with a support system, and ultimately with professional help in the places that they live. Or as you have pointed out, I was listening on the way here or online as well. Mm -hmm. But I think just learning, man, I'm not a realistic or reasonable or sustainable solution. So this thing has to be bigger and healthier than me and even than our team as well. Uh, and did you begin to feel your battery getting recharged, letting go of some of the responsibility and not feeling like you had to be the sole answer or yeah. conduit uh, for, yeah, for other people? Definitely. And and some of it, I think, wasn't even about hours or job description. Some of it was just I had gotten comfortable giving this advice. And it's not that I was faking it. I, I genuinely believed and still believe in getting to tell people, hey, it's okay to be honest. Hey, you deserve to be connected to other people. And more than anything that, you know, it's okay to ask for help and great help is out there. So I got comfortable even standing on a stage or in a setting like this, believing it and saying it, but I had not yet taken those steps in my own life. And so I think that's been a huge piece of the puzzle simply was getting to a place of now being someone who, who, knows what it's like to go to a counselor. Like I've had several different seasons of counseling twice a week, once a week, uh, went away to a place called onsite a couple of summers ago. And uh, I remember their sort of tagline was telling us it was like a year's worth of therapy in a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm someone who takes an antidepressant and just getting comfortable with these things being part of my life and part of my healing and stability. And so I think that's been huge as well is just, knowing that the advice I hope other people will take, that it applies to me. And I think beyond just those, beyond counseling and meds, even just self-care and you know sleep and prioritizing relationships and hobbies and... And it's okay to say no. Yeah, totally. Uh, there, there's a saying in uh, codependency uh, recovery, no is a complete sentence. Yeah. You don't have to explain why. For sure. Oh, I mean, even like this trip, like I, I flew from Florida to do this with you and I, I got in yesterday and uh we work with this publicity group that's great and they wanted to keep me really busy and they were going to have me do something last night and i knew i wanted to spend time with a friend uh that's been going through a hard time and i didn't want to be doing this thing in hollywood at 10 o'clock last night mm -hmm. and and so i was just able to say hey i i don't think I, can i say no to that because i want to spend that time elsewhere and even part of it just hey so i can go to sleep and be ready for the next day. Yeah. And maybe years ago, I wouldn't have been comfortable saying no. I, I was going through, have been going through the same thing. And I recently cleared my recording schedule because I could feel myself uh, starting to pull away. 
And I didn't realize that you were flying in specifically. I, I could never imagine that I would be that important that somebody would fly in specifically. And so when your publicist told me that, I was like, oh, well, oh. let's, let's certainly. Well, thanks for keep, doing it. Keep this. And I, I'm glad because you, you know, as I read more and more about your organization, uh, I was like, wow, I'm really glad I'm getting to meet this guy and, you know, give a platform for, for what it is that you're doing. You guys raise a ton of money. And you, you help a lot of people. And, you know, the, the helper getting help is such an important and I think often missed piece of the puzzle. Uh, that it's a, it's a dynamic that there aren't just people out there that are sick. Everybody, it seems, while maybe not sick, has something, a blind spot. You know, a wound, sure. something, uh, you know, an area of their life maybe that's just simply a little uh, undernourished. Definitely. And, and we need that, that tune up. It's, it's like we bring our car in once a year. Yeah, our car is important, but what about our brain and our soul and our body? It, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I love that example for sure. Uh, anything you'd like to, to share? How can people help? Man, so much of it has been just people using whatever influence, whatever platform they have uh, to talk about our organization. Early on, it was people sharing this story that I had written. Uh, it can be as simple as someone buying a t-shirt and that supports the work we do. And it could be as big as, you know, joining our team as an intern and moving to Florida and a whole bunch of ways in between. We have our biggest campaign of the year is around World Suicide Prevention Day, which is coming up that September 10th every year. So that's become kind of our Super Bowl. Uh, and, and so we, we gear up for the weeks leading up to that. And there's always a, a fundraising piece, but just a lot of different ways. And, and I think the hope is as we have these campaigns and moments throughout the year, it's not just a way to highlight what we're doing, but hopefully a way for people to be vulnerable and to jump into this conversation and also to tell part of their own story. So I think what we love so often is just getting to be sort of a vessel where people can have these vulnerable conversations and can talk about things that maybe they wouldn't normally be talking about. E even in kind of an accidental part of our story has been someone just asking, Hey, what does your shirt mean? What, you know, even mm -hmm. today, what, what are those words on your t-shirt or your sweatshirt? And I love that out of that, they don't get to just talk about us, but they get to talk about why this stuff is personal for them. If you come to our website, which is T W L O H A.com, there's a whole bunch of ways to get involved. Uh, obviously, there's a, a financial aspect of supporting what we do. We love to create opportunities for people to have these conversations, whether it's in key moments throughout the year or, or just every day through the blogs that we post, tweets, things on social media, articles, information. You know, I, I think you and I share the same heart or mind in just wanting to normalize this conversation mm -hmm. and you know, you compared it to maintaining a car or I'll sometimes talk about if someone broke their arm, there's no question of what to do next. And there's certainly no shame. No one would think about faking it. And I think we just dream of a world where we approach mental health the same way, where it's just part of being alive. It's part of being human. You don't have to hide it, fake it. It's okay to talk about it. There's no asterisk, certainly in, in terms of mental health care and insurance, there's a long way to go. Uh, but we would love to invite people to the website to learn more about what we're doing. Awesome. Uh, would it be possible to end with you reading the piece you wrote? Yeah, let me just grab it. Yeah, man. 
Let me just find this. Your dog's so good. Yeah, she's awesome. And uh, Jamie's just adopted a dog two months ago, and its name is Gracie. Yeah, so we bonded over that. Yeah. So I wrote this the night that we all found out about the death of Robin Williams. And I knew right away I wanted to write something uh, on behalf of the organization. And I, I never met him. I, I didn't know him. And so I, I wasn't going to write about his life. I certainly wasn't going to speculate or write about his death. But I think I wanted to write something for people who could relate to that struggle. And, and even to the point of getting to a place of wondering if they could live another day. And, and so this was what I wrote that night and I called it there is still some time if you feel too much there's still a place for you here if you feel too much don't go if this world is too painful stop and rest it's okay to stop and rest if you need a break it's okay to say you need a break this life it's not a contest not a race not a performance not a thing that you win it's okay to slow down you are here for more than grades, more than a job, more than a promotion, more than keeping up, more than getting by. This life is not about status or opinion or appearance. You don't have to fake it. You do not have to fake it. Other people feel this way too. If your heart is broken, it's okay to say your heart is broken. If you feel stuck, it's okay to say you feel stuck. If you can't let go, it's okay to say you can't let go. You are not alone in these places. Other people feel how you feel. You are more than just your pain. You are more than wounds, more than drugs, more than death and silence. There is still some time to be surprised. There is still some time to ask for help. There is still some time to start again. And there is still some time for love to find you. It's not too late. You're not alone. It's okay. Whatever you need and however long it takes, it's okay. It's okay. If you feel too much, there's still a place for you here. If you feel too much, don't go. There is still some time. That was awful. <laughs> Dude, that was beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for, for coming and, and sharing your story and all the work that, that you do. And we'll put the links to, to all your stuff. Love it. Thank you so much for having me. Many, many thanks to Jamie. And we'll put all the information to connect to him on our uh, website under the show notes for this episode. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, 
Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself worthless and witless. He is straight in his 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. He writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, mostly covert incest. Yes, covert incest counts as a form of uh, sexual abuse. Mostly covert incest. My father kept porn playing on the family television in the family room most of the time. Both of my parents walked around nude a lot and discussed details of sex acts beyond normal birds and bees openly in the home. It is so fucked up. And sadly, all too common. Uh, he's been emotionally and physically abused. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, my dad introduced me to a very varied and sophisticated taste in music. Darkest thoughts. I often fantasize about just walking away from my marriage, my job, everything, to just become anonymous on some South Pacific island and try to start over as someone new without all the history and baggage that I carry. If only our brains work that way. I know that even if I did this, the asshole voice in my head that points out my flaws would still live upstairs rent-free. It's, it's, it is so common. It's one of the most common things I've read in the, these surveys is that fantasy of just driving away from our lives and setting up somewhere else. Maybe we should. Maybe the, all of the country should agree on a start-over island. And everybody can just, I tell you this much, it would be hard to find somebody willing to commit to a relationship on Startover Island. I'm sure there would be a lot of fucking and drinking, but, and then you'd actually, people would get burned out there because they would get to know everybody and then they would feel the same suffocation. So then you'd have to have a Startover, Startover Island. And then uh, I think you'd need a whole chain of islands. And then the very tip top, very, very end of the chain of islands would be the people who are really afraid of intimacy, but don't mind packing. Darkest secrets. I routinely struggle with health anxiety these days, namely around degenerative diseases like MS, ALS, etc., that would leave me in a shell of a body. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about having, quote, Archie Andrews sex. Just two people in a loving, committed relationship sharing their love for each other through the physical act. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I hate the word fucking. It takes me right back to my family room as a child with the dead eyes, emotionless sex on the TV all the time. That's the only way my brain really understands of relating to sex, and I absolutely hate it. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could have a relationship where my value as a human being was recognized and cherished by my partner. 
someone who would smile lovingly as I talk without interrupting me, someone who would strive to empathize with my past without making me feel stupid or petty for being depressed and anxious over what it has done to me. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've been married 12 years. Over those years, I have communicated them to my wife only to be told that I was being, quote, dramatic or over-exaggerating or looking for attention. We're currently in couples therapy and things aren't going much better, so I guess I'd say it's not gone well. Well, the good news is, is that you're moving forward and you're finding out the truths of whether or not intimacy is possible in this marriage that you have. But then at a certain point, the responsibility is going to be on you to decide whether or not you want to live without intimacy because you can't change your partner. I mean, you can certainly go to therapy and hope that a light bulb goes off in their head and that they're willing to change and same same with you. But if you're not willing to walk away from a relationship, um, it's insanity to stay in that relationship and resent that other person for not changing. It's like putting ourselves in a prison of our own making and then, you know, being pissed off that uh, we think we're locked in there. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't really know how writing this down makes me feel. I've had to compartmentalize so much over the many years and been told that the effect on me had no merit or that I was over-dramatizing, that I've essentially dissociated myself from my own experience and reality. Dude, the things that you have described are so damaging. What you experienced in childhood is profoundly wounding. It's who wouldn't feel invisible? Your parents were sick, selfish people who put their needs ahead of yours. And that affects how we feel about ourselves, the partner we choose, the boundaries we set, everything. Uh, Continuing, I've essentially dissociated myself from my own experience and reality. That's a long way of saying that I hope that eventually I'll be able to process the simple act of sharing these things, but I don't know if I really will. I think the key for you is going to be finding people that are receptive and empathetic. And it sounds like that might not be with your wife. Who knows? Maybe it will be. Maybe she'll change. But... um, You don't need to wait for her to change to start finding your emotional family, people who get you. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you're another person with a similar experience, all I would say is that your experience matters. You matter. It's all real to you. And if anyone tells you that you or your experience don't matter, fuck them. Also, I'll say something that I probably need to hear myself. If the person making you feel small is someone close to you, like a parent, sibling, or spouse, expunge them from your life. I know it feels hard in these situations because of the intimate connections, but you have to take care of yourself. Why waste another day or your personal hell? Or does that mean on your personal hell? Amen. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Sarah. There's a million Sarahs. I'm not worried. And she writes, One Halloween, I was anywhere from 9 to 11, and my brother, who's four years younger, 
and I we were sitting in the living room watching TV. We either had gotten back from trick-or-treating or it was too early to go. I'm not sure which, but we were content with sitting in front of the TV. My parents start fighting and then start screaming at each other, and we just go on watching TV. Just another day. At some point, the yelling stops. And sometimes later, both of my parents, sometime later, both of my parents come into the living room, not angry at each other or at us and go, hey, what's up? Getting our attention. We look and probably replied, not much, a little confused to see their confused look. My dad goes, did you notice we were gone for like an hour? My brother says, nope. My mom goes into the kitchen, which overlooks the living room and picks up something and goes, did you even see this? And they both burst out laughing, like really laughing. So we're both intrigued at this point and asking what was going on. My parents had planned a prank, and the fight that we heard and ignored was my parents pretending to be arguing with one another and my dad cutting off my mom's finger. They had fake blood, a real chef's knife covered in blood, a fake finger with my mom's wedding ring on it, and apparently they left in the car for an hour to let us be in complete panic. We also found it pretty hysterical. Holy fuck. And she has a second moment. Um, She befriended somebody and was very nervous about bringing them home to potentially see what her family was like. And uh, she was in seventh grade and got off the bus with her friend, and I'll pick it up there. Walking towards my house after getting off the bus was the most anxious walk I have ever had. I'd known her for over a year, and still I was so nervous about what might happen when we get to my house. She notices that I'm nervous, but doesn't say anything directly, pointing it out, uh, which is unlike her personality. She must have known I needed it to not be noticed. I take a deep breath in at my front door and swing it open. Oh my God. I walk down the long, straight hall, past the family room, and now standing in the kitchen, pulling a huge knife out of the wall, I put it back in the drawer and look up at all the knife holes in the hallway wall and look back at my friend Casey, who is rightfully standing there with her eyes wide open. I sighed and walked through the living room into my room. Of course, the first thing we see is another knife sticking out of the wall. My dad apparently had to relieve some steam by throwing a knife repeatedly into the wall. Casey, still a little shocked, goes, Nice room. Then I start laughing and tell her what I thought was going on and that I was worried something like this would happen, and that's why I hadn't invited her over sooner. Thankfully, she kind of got it, and we could both laugh about it. She came over many more times after that and even made me brave enough to invite a few others over a few times. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by uh, a girl. She's 16, calls herself a maniac. And her issues, uh, she writes, I've been in therapy for a total of six years, starting at age 10, but didn't take medication until this month. Uh, oh, her, her issues are anxiety, panic disorder, depression, ADHD, uh, and bipolar disorder too with paranoia and psychosis. And what has helped you deal with them? Medication. I've been in therapy for a total of six years starting at age 10, but didn't take medication until this month. Uh, at first they put me on Lexapro because they thought I had straight up depression, but that triggered a manic episode and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after I realized I'd been manic before, but didn't know it was mania. 
Then they put me in Seroquel for the first time. I think I felt as close to a normal brain. Uh, I know there's no such thing, but you get what I mean. As I think I will ever get. For the first time in my whole life, I felt calm. And it was amazing. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you? My mom is absolutely amazing and supportive. And best of all, she doesn't suggest things like yoga or going to church and finding God will give me the stability that my brain craves. She just listens and is empathetic. Thank you for that. So, so awesome to have a parent that can listen and empathize. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Scotland 99. She is straight in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was around five or six, my friend, who was a year older than me and also female, asked me to re- asked me to enact a sex scene from a movie that she had seen. I didn't fully understand what I was doing, but in the beginning, I didn't hate it. From there, we were very close and met up in all of our free time. We kept on doing stuff. She always made me do stuff to her but refused to do anything back for a few years until we weren't in the same class anymore and fell out of touch. Throughout this time, all I remember feeling was overwhelming guilt. I didn't understand exactly what I was doing, but I knew it was a secret and that it was wrong. The village I grew up in was quiet and safe so I could walk back from her house alone feeling guilty and dirty and I would pass the pass the village shop and buy lots of junk food and I would go home and eat it all. I gained a lot of weight as a young child. I would steal money from my parents to buy food and comfort ate away the guilt I felt from meeting up with my friend. Over time, the constant guilt has led to depression and depersonalization but I am too embarrassed to talk to anyone about it or to go to the doctors. I really, really urge you to open up to somebody about that. Uh, She's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Um, I remember when I was very young, around three or four, I stole something from my nursery, got caught, and got in loads of trouble. I remember telling my mom that I hated myself and I wanted to die. I was so guilty and ashamed. She held me and said, don't say that. You are not allowed to say that. You can't talk like that. I know she was trying to be soothing, but I think that installed um, from me, in me from a very young age that I can't talk about my mental health and that I wasn't allowed to think things like that. I don't think this was abuse, but I think there is now a massive barrier between us. We're incredibly open with each other about everything else, and we do talk about other people's mental health. I just feel that my emotional well-being has been neglected. Any positive experiences with people who have abused you? Yes, it was my best friend. We had and continue to have many good experiences. I find it confusing, and so I try not to think about it. Darkest thoughts. I have a sexual desire to be raped slash dominated by a man. I am into older men. I get turned on by incest. I think about child porn, but once I snap out of it, I get upset. I could never sexually abuse a child, and I hate myself for thinking about it. I am so embarrassed and ashamed by my own thoughts. Uh, Darkest secrets. Sometimes I think back to the times I did stuff with my friend and get off to it. I cry after I hate to think about my seven-year-old self in that situation. She didn't deserve it. 
Also, I once stole 20 pounds from a disabled relative when I was around 10 years old. I have never told anyone, and I still feel extremely guilty about it today. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rape, incest, although I do not and have never been attracted to anyone in my family, I still enjoy the porn. Also, since the first sexual experience I had was as a child, so elements of that still show up. I hate it. I hate being aroused by things I am so fundamentally against. Uh, There's a book by a guy named Jack Morin called uh, The Erotic Mind, and in it, he talks about studies that have been done about people's experiences and the things that turn them on. And one of the things that that he discovered and talks about in this book is the very nature of things that we are morally against or that cause us anxiety are the things that add to the erotic nature of our fantasies. And so it's actually quite normal for those things to show up in our fantasies. And what's important is what we do with them, you know, as long as we're not hurting somebody. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want my friend to know how bad she hurt me. I am not good at talking about my feelings, so I've never been able to bring it up. I also don't know if she remembers or if it was just as traumatic for her. I want my parents to know why I act out. I love them so much, but again, I can't talk about my mental health. I want them to understand what is going on in my head, but I don't even understand it myself. And this is why I think support groups are so great, because in the beginning, you can just kind of hang out in the back and watch people talk, and then you see a model for feelings being discussed, and you see the link between the things that have happened to us and the bad coping mechanism that that we've used and how finding different coping mechanisms and different ways of expressing ourselves can help bring us to a healthier place in our lives where we're not as afraid to have difficult conversations. You know, expecting somebody to just suddenly be able to talk eloquently about the most confusing, painful thing in in their lives. is like expecting them to walk out on a Broadway stage without having read a script and all of a sudden know what to say. No, it takes time. It takes being a part of a community of people who are talking about these same things. A rehearsal, if you will. Oh, who's, who's that guy? That's uh, Pompous Blue Blood. Well, 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 oh my. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to feel properly. I want to be okay. Have you shared these things with others? Never. I don't trust anyone enough. My friend who abused me was the last time I got that close to anyone. Anytime I see myself getting that close to anyone now, I subconsciously pull away and destroy the friendship. I don't think anyone deserves to know these things about me. Maybe not, but you deserve to be known. You deserve to feel seen and to have your pain validated. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. I am crying. This is the first time I've put my experiences into words, so this is a little surreal. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? This doesn't need to control you. Thank you so much for that. That was so heartfelt. And I really, really hope you take that 
that leap of faith and start opening up to people that feel safe. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Massive Jackass. His issues are OCD, anxiety, and fear. What has helped him? Therapy. His dog, friends, family, therapy, therapy, music, TV, and friends. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you? You're too hard on yourself. You worry too much. Watch out for that car behind you. (laughs) Never underestimate the power of somebody keeping an eye out for us in traffic. Very rarely discussed. Any comments to make the podcast better? More talk about cashew butter. Cashew butter, they take cashews and they smash it and it turns into butter and it's delicious. I keep bumping into the mic. I got it too low and when I move these papers, it keeps hitting it. And maybe I should move it, but that would make sense. This is a pretty heavy survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Shattered in San Diego, and he uh, identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, and he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, you write some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Oh, it definitely counts. Your mother should be in jail. He writes, when I was a boy, somewhere between seven and nine years old, my mother told me to strip down and stand in the bathtub. She then instructed me to give myself an erection. Make it big, I think she said, or something to that effect. She was holding a Polaroid camera. I had no idea why she wanted me to do this, but she was intent on taking a picture of my genitals. At that point, my, quote, family had been dysfunctional at best, but this behavior from my mother was alarming and completely out of character. I refused to cooperate. I tried to get out of the bathtub. I tried to cover myself, but my mom stopped me. She kept insisting. I remember feeling upset and ashamed. I was crying. I had no idea why this was happening. Eventually, I gave in. I did the best I could to get an erection, even though I didn't really know how in front of my mother. She snapped a single picture and promised to let me destroy it at a later time. At least she kept her word. A day or two later, she gave me the photo and a pair of scissors, and I cut it into the smallest pieces I could manage. Nothing like that ever happened again. To this day, I don't know the reason for that forced photo. Later in life, I found out that my mother and pseudo-stepfather had been abusing just about any drug there was, but I never asked about the photo. Before today, I never shared this story with anyone. It's now almost 30 years later, and thinking of that day still brings me shame and confusion. I'm not sure if I want to know the reason even now. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. My guess, and it doesn't really matter the reason, you know, the important thing is healing and the feelings that are left in the wake of that, but my guess would be that she probably provided that picture to somebody in exchange for money or drugs. He's also been physically and emotionally abused. Um, here, this is. There was a guy named Larry that lived with uh, his mom, and he writes, "The worst one I can remember 
was that I was made to stand in the center of our living room on a sheet of paper. I was not allowed to step off the paper. I was to hold my hands with palms facing out, the same pose as one would make if they were being held at gunpoint. I was made to hold pennies between my fingers, and a four-foot-long, half-inch diameter metal rod was placed between the back of my neck and the insides of my forearms. I was told that if I tore or stepped off of the paper, or if I dropped the pennies, or if I made any noise at all, I would be beaten with the rod. I don't remember how long I was supposed to have stood there, but eventually my fingers started to go numb and spread apart. I could feel the pennies starting to move. I was terrified. I could hear Larry start to laugh as the pennies fell from my numb hands. I started to run, but there was nowhere to go. He was all running, already running at me with a folded leather belt in his hand. Both your mom and Larry should be in jail. That had been the worst incident I'd experienced, but there were many others like it. I suppose I feel a mixture of anger, depression, and regret. I often wonder how much better my life would have been if my dad hadn't died or simply if Larry had never entered the picture. I can never know. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I don't remember any positive experiences about my tormentor. I haven't seen him in 30 years, and I still hate him with all of my being. Darkest thoughts. I am 100% certain that if I ever saw Larry again, I would murder him. He'd have to be in his late 60s or early 70s by now, but I don't care. I would kill him in the most painful way I could imagine, and I, would feel, and I wouldn't feel anything but justice. I hope he is either dead or suffering. Darkest Secrets In a way, the abuse in my past has made me the person I am. I'm a very anxious person, but I don't have anxiety about being hurt again. Instead, my anxiety comes from the fear that if I let people get close to me, physically or emotionally, I will end up hurting them like Larry hurt me. Even though I've never hit anyone, I feel like an abused child trapped in an abuser's body. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The fantasy that is most powerful to me is the idea of utterly pleasing a woman sexually, just bringing her to orgasm over and over, connecting on a seemingly impossible level of intimacy. It's not about me. It's about her. It's about finding her fantasies and fulfilling them completely. But since it's my fantasy I'm talking about, her desires would be compatible with mine. Like, I wouldn't have to exchange engage in BDSM or anything that would make me uncomfortable. I guess that could be shortened to say, I fantasize about perfect sexual chemistry. I don't feel weird about sharing that idea, probably because this is anonymous. Maybe I feel a little pervy, but it's not that uncomfortable. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? There are many times in my life I would have liked to tell a woman I was attracted to her. I've almost never done it because I don't like to be seen as aggressive, creepy, or gross. I don't want to make a woman I admire feel uncomfortable. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could start my life over with the knowledge I have now. Have you shared these things with others? Some of my close friends know some of these stories. Some I only share with a therapist. A couple of them I have never shared with anyone because they feel too deep or dark. I really encourage you to share all of them with your therapist, even if it's just a tiny bit at a time, because that stuff, it's, it's toxic, those secrets. 
they, they just eat at us. How do you feel after writing these things down? I didn't think I would have so much to say. I have relived these stories in my head hundreds of times, but sharing them, even anonymously, feels different. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? What's helped me the most is finding friends in whom I can confide. Avoid keeping these thoughts and emotions to yourself. Find someone you can trust to be totally vulnerable with. A lot of times, there's a professional therapist, but sometimes it can be a drinking buddy or a family member. But don't dump all of your vulnerability at once. Portion it out as if your experiences are marbles being placed in a jar one at a time. When the person proves worthy of your trust, drop a couple more marbles in their jar. Take some of their marbles. Look for reciprocity. Such great advice. Yeah, that part about not dumping it all at once is so, so true. So, so true. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a happy birthday that wasn't mine. And she writes, I was visiting a friend in New Orleans, and it happened to be Pride Weekend. I was already so happy to be with her for her birthday. She'd introduced me to her roommates. I went to her college classes. I met her friends. It was so sticky hot, I was melting. But I was overjoyed to be exploring that beautiful city with a close friend. It felt like home. We mixed our juice and some alcohol and piled into my roommate's car, into her roommate's car, and watched the parade on Bourbon Street. My God, it was gorgeous. The costumes, the joy, the gayness. Oh, man, the music. Later, we got beignets and took pictures. My brain has never been more relaxed. Oh, that's so beautiful. And there is something so soothing about New Orleans. It is, it is one of my favorite cities except in the summer. Uh, I really hope that you guys got something out of uh, today's episode and the surveys. I know they were kind of heavy, but sometimes when I'm going through the surveys, that's that's the order that I read them in. And, um, and I always just feel like, well, it's just kind of meant to be. Some Some weeks are lighter than others. And I know a lot of you like the heavier surveys. And I guess you can always fast forward if it's too heavy for you. Anyway, that's enough of my apologizing. I'm going to go beat myself up in a different way. Actually, I think I'm going to take Gracie for a little skate. Uh, If you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And I encourage you to find your people. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.